0: America Media leads the conversation with balance, sobriety, and depth. We know informed and charitable debate are possible in our church and in the country we love. We do it every day. Join us this Advent season. Visit americamagazine.org donate to make your gift.
1: That's americamagazine.org donate.
2: We just, none of that was they on tape. So much good content. Wow, you even got Zach being excited about cats. That's oh, never going to happen again.
0: Right. Ugh, tragic. <sighs> nope, it never happened.
2: <laughs> all right. Oh, Lordy.
3: <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless and I'm joined by Olga Skura. Hey guys. And Zach Davis. Ooh,
0: it's so, chilly. Are you a little
3: chilly? It's a, <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: I am a little chilly and also a little cold. Um, it's snowy, snowy, winter is here. I know, um, it was and, so sad. Yeah, and Olga got us a really good good drink for you.
3: Yeah, me. what's on tap, Zach? So
0: we're drinking uh, Saint Germain. I never know where you're supposed to say it, like Germ- French or mm. English pronunciation? Like you're non. asking the wrong
2: people. <laughs> yeah, you know Ashley and I. Whatever's the wrong way, that's the way. That is we it like a,
0: is it like a Bon Iver, Bonny Ver type thing? Anyway, mm. we're drinking a Saint Germain <laughs> or Saint Germain uh, hot toddy that you yeah. found this recipe for. So it's basically like Saint Germain and uh, chai tea.
2: Yeah, spice chai
0: tea. Spice chai tea. Yep. Thank, thank you to fellow oranges. Kevin Jackson for the tea. <laughs> All right, cheers, y'all. Cheers. And may this Beep. warm our hearts and our bodies.
2: Oh, that's delicious. Mm. All right. Who are we talking to this week, Olga? So this week we're interviewing Mike O'Loughlin, who is America's national correspondent and the host of the new podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church.
3: And hopefully that name sounds familiar to you because the first episode of Plague dropped in the Jesuitical feed on Sunday. So you had a chance to check that out.
0: Yeah. So... We're going to be talking to Mike about that first episode, sort of where the podcast is going and why he really wanted to dig into this history, um, this untold history of the AIDS crisis in the Catholic Church.
3: But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic News of the Week so you don't have to. Our first story comes from the Vatican, where a Jesuit priest
2: is creating a new server for the popular video game called Minecraft. Yes, and this is coming from Father Robert Balassare, who wanted to create a gaming environment that was less toxic than traditional servers. So he asked a lot of his Twitter followers, he has a really big Twitter audience, to weigh in on what game they'd like to see, and people picked Minecraft. So, Zach, yes, <laughs> so we're both turning to you right now. What is Minecraft? What is a server?
0: So, did some googling. Um, no, Minecraft is super popular, especially uh. with the kids uh, nowadays. But it's this—it's a game where you like create worlds, um, do a lot of building. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and you then see... the server.
2: What is that part?
0: So, servers wh- are what allow the game to become multiplayer. You okay. sort of like different groups or individuals will host servers and they're sort of themed or different rules are set up okay, that allow people, people to chat. Yeah. That other. makes it an interactive multiplayer okay. game. And
3: so like any other part of the internet that invites, you know, abusive behavior and, and
0: anonymous behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. So okay. it, it can be, I mean, it, it to an extent. Right. And so there's a lot of toxicity on there. And so I thought this was a really good initiative. I don't really understand what specifically this new server is going to do to sort of weed out um, some some of the toxic mm-hmm. behavior. Mm-hmm. But I think it, based on what he said so far, he's sort of going to be keeping an eye on it and creating a, a better community.
3: Okay. Well, if any of our listeners are Minecraft players, please check it out and tell us what it's like.
0: Yeah, we'll put the server in our show notes. It's in beta right now, but you could help contribute to a better digital world.
3: (laughs) All right. What's our next story, Zach?
0: So NBC News has released a first-of-its-kind survey of employees of the Catholic Church. So this includes priests, uh, women religious, male religious, and lay people. So the people that are sort of, quote-unquote, running the church, um, working for it. Um, asking them what they think about a number of topics, um, clerical sex abuse, gender, um, and a number of other things.
2: Right. And, you know, you just mentioned the question of sex abuse. So participants were asked whether clerical abuse was, A, no longer a problem, B, still a major problem, or C, was never more of a problem than it is in other fields that involve the care of kids. Right and overall,
3: fourteen percent it was no longer a major problem. Thirty-nine percent said it was still a major problem, and forty-six percent said it was a never. It was never a uniquely Catholic problem. Um, and one of the interesting things is there was a big divide between priests and women religious on this. Fifty-four um, percent of priests said it was never a uniquely Catholic problem, while fifty-five percent of nuns say it is still a major problem in the Catholic Church. So
0: the, qu- the question is, was this surprising?
3: I, yeah, no, I was thinking about what my answer would have been because, you know, I technically am a layperson working for the Catholic Church. Yep. <laughs> I guess not technically, yeah, I just am. Checks out. <laughs> um, and so what I, what I was thinking is what— what they're actually asking when they ask this question because like i couldn't tell are they asking is sex abuse still a problem in that like the rates of sexual abuse of minors are still as high as they were in the 60s and 70s or are they asking sexual abuse is still something that the church really is needs to grapple with and hold people accountable for their past actions so if like that's the question then yeah i would say it's still a major problem
0: right i'm i'm reading into this sort of a, the, the the first, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, it, the priest who responded that it's no longer a problem are, you know, the rate of sexual abuse actually happening, as you said, has slowed almost to a trickle is how it's yeah. described.
3: Yeah, and, it, and when allegations are made, they are taken care of quickly and seriously.
0: Yeah, and I think, but like, I think probably what these nuns that answered who are saying it's still a problem, they're probably concerned with most Catholics are, um, and not to say the priests aren't concerned about it. I just yeah. think this was probably interpreted in a different way you know, the cover-up and Mm -hmm. these things that we're still reckoning with even now.
2: Yeah. What do you think, Olga? Honestly, I was kind of, what I found most surprising about this, and again, Ashley mentioned, we're all people who, were lay people who work in Catholic media. I expected like 39% said it was still a major problem. I would have expected that to be so much higher because I know we've talked about how in the past year since the grand jury report came out, this has been such a huge issue that we've talked about on the podcast that we've processed. So I expected every I always think of this issue as being at the forefront of the mind of everyone in the church. So I was surprised to see these numbers. Yeah,
0: I was wondering when I was looking at this, too, how much of like our biases sort of, we're in the media. Like, so we're covering that mm-hmm. more than you would say if you were running like a a soup kitchen or some other type of charity. Um, But sex abuse wasn't the only thing that this survey asked about. There was another set of questions that centered on the Pope, politics, and social issues.
3: Right. And this was, I found this kind of surprising. Um, Given how much the media focuses on the critics of Pope Francis and the American church, there is very large majorities of Catholic employees who generally agree with Pope Francis on issues like the environment, um, free market capitalism,
2: and the rights of migrants. So. And there was more division ab- among some of the subgroups on questions relating to women's ordination to the diaconate and the ordination of married priests.
0: Yeah, diocesan priests were more likely to consider questions like that to be settled doctrine. Um, but the majorities of religious order priests, nuns and lay people all thought that they needed further study. So that's sort of how it was presented. Like, is this question of uh, women deacons settled doctrine or is it need more study
3: so there's a lot of really good data to look at and dig into here um but i think one of the big takeaways is like people think you know if you work for the church you you are just like company men and women and you toe the party line um which is you know to an extent you know you are working under the hierarchy but there's a lot of diversity of opinion within that um and the church is not a monolith
2: what's our next story olga So our next story is coming out of New York City, where a mother is suing a Catholic school in Queens, New York, after her son was sent home on his first day of school for breaking the school's ban on braided hair. So he was the school told the eight year old that he needed to remove his braids and he had five days to change his cornrows.
0: So these are rules that we've seen stories about in other places that um, try to enforce a particular hairstyle or uh, forbid sort of other. Hairstyles, but studies have shown that these are disproportionately enforced on uh, students of color.
3: Right, and so the the child's mother tried to reach out to the principal to see if they could work something out, got no response, and eventually pulled him out of the school in the first week um, and ended up placing him at a public school that did not have similar restrictions on hairstyles. And now she is suing the school um, for uh, violating their civil rights. And and they had already paid, you know, for the uniform Mm -hmm. and other supplies. And, you know, they want their money back.
0: Yeah. What does the school's policy actually say about uh, hairstyles.
2: Yeah, so the school policy says that the boy's hair must be, quote, neat and trim, no longer than the top of the shirt collar, no designs, mohawk, ponytail, braids, buns, no hair color.
0: Probably raise your eyebrow if you hear neat and trim. And then what counts as neat and trim.
2: Right, right. Um, And the reason that this has become such a big issue is because back in July, New York became the second state to pass a bill that prohibits discrimination against natural hair or hairstyles, which, as we know, disproportionately tends to affect people of color. Um, But it doesn't apply to religious and private schools.
0: Right. Obviously, because it's Catholic school, it's not a public school, they can have their own
3: rules. Right. And, And I think, you know, I'm personally happy that there are protections for religious institutions. I don't want the state getting involved. But I also don't think that Catholic schools should
2: need to have the state to tell them to do what's right. Dear God, this This is not a
0: difficult. I mean, this is not a difficult issue, right?
2: Right. It's what's most frustrating for me is that there are so many. I, I report on this a lot where Catholics of color just want the church to be better when it comes to the daily lives of black and brown Catholics. This is a situation for me where the church can very easily just show that it gets the nuances of what it means to be a person of color in America. And it's just really frustrating every time I see a headline like this, because I'm like, we have to be better. And
0: it's obviously incumbent upon the church and especially white Catholics to stick up for Catholics of color and listen to the stories like this and call on it to change from within. Because as Ashley mentioned, it is, you know, the state can't force us to yeah. change our rules here. But this also shouldn't be difficult when mm-hmm. this is this injustice is pointed out.
3: Yeah. And I think the mother in this situation put it best. She said, you'd think a Catholic school is about Christ and love. What does a hairdo have to do with that?
0: Well said.
3: All right. What's our next story, Zach?
0: So our next story is Pope Francis centered. We're also getting in the Advent season. Happy liturgical new year, all listeners. Um, Pope Francis put the Advent in adventure this past Sunday. He uh, traveled by helicopter. Thank you very much. Traveling by helicopter to a small town of Greccio, the site of the very first nativity scene.
2: Well, the first recreation of the nativity scene, correct? Yeah, I guess the first... Jesus was not born in a small town in Italy. In Italy.
0: No, 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 I guess the first nativity scene is in Bethlehem.
2: Right, right. So in 1223, St. Francis of Assisi used the setting of a cave there to replicate the nativity scene for the first time, thereby starting a tradition that quickly spread throughout Christian Europe and later to many other continents.
3: Right, and this is a, this is a saint that's very close to Pope Francis's... Heart. He took it as his name, uh, Francis of Assisi. Um, and he said, with that first nativity scene, uh, St. Francis carried out a great work of evangelization. Um, because today, you know, this small tradition that started, you know, thousand years ago, we still do every day. I mean, every season. <laughs> right.
0: The nativity scene, it invites us to. Francis says, Feel and touch the poverty that God's Son took upon himself in the incarnation. Yeah, it's a very Catholic thing to be able to just like sort of look at statues, touch them really engage our imaginations in a, in a visual way.
2: Yeah, and he encouraged specifically the practice of putting up nativity sets in homes and in public spaces because he really wants us to get really creative when we talk about nativity scenes, which I really like this. I feel like it's a challenge for me because I don't really include nativity sets at any time I put up my decorations. What are What about you guys? So I only have one and I,
3: I don't really see it as a Christmas decoration because it's, it's a nativity set uh, that I got. In the Holy Land, uh, a few years ago, um, and this will surprise you, Zach. It's actually a pretty political nativity set. It shows oh. it shows the scene of uh, of the nativity, the you know the traditional um, you know manger and animals and whatever. But there's a wall separating the major and Mary and Joseph from the wise men, and that's supposed to invoke the wall that cuts the West Bank off from Israel proper.
0: Wow! And actually, there's a lot of Uh, nativity sets that originate from the Holy Land, right? From Bethlehem itself, Yeah, no, it's
3: a really important industry um, in Bethlehem. You know, because of that wall, they are limited in the ways that they can make money. And so one of the major things they rely on are tourists who come to Bethlehem and buy nativity scenes like this and and other other handmade goods there.
0: I really loved what... So speaking of, like, sort of putting a spin on it, Mm -hmm. um, I guess some might see that as sort of like sacrilege or, you know, there's no need to, like... Touch what's like clearly like written in scripture, but Francis said it's like typical and customary to add cultural symbols from our own time in in this. Oh, I sh- we should say this was a three thousand word letter right. that Pope Francis <laughs> wrote on nativity scenes, which is awesome. <laughs> I thought um, just sort of like it's not on like dogma or mm-hmm. doctrine or anything. It's just on nativity sets. Um, it, but he mentions how it's normal, you know, to put make the poor present at mm-hmm. the nativity, even though we have no idea like who all was there mm-hmm. necessarily. Um, but I don't know if that gives license to adding people like uh, Stormtroopers or Batman. <laughs> or because, Baby Yoda. Or Baby Yoda. Baby is going to be a lot of nativity scenes yeah. this year, I think. Mm-hmm.
2: Do,
3: do you have it? What's your nativity scene? Tradition?
0: So a couple. Um, I usually like to buy them for my mother if I'm traveling somewhere mm-hmm. and I find somewhere that's selling them. That's sort of like the gift I always bring back to my mom. Christmas decorations are a big deal for her. Um, but sort of the family nativity set. uh, We're missing Joseph because when we sold our house back in Ohio, I went and buried him in the front yard uh, so that the house would sell quicker and forgot to go back and get him. So uh, he's still there on Hawthorne Boulevard. But there's a shepherd who's got uh, his head cracked. And so it's like fixed with scotch tape. So it's a very worn in nativity. Um,
3: That's wonderful. I love that story. Um, Listeners, what is your nativity set story? Have you replaced any of your characters with batman or spongebob (laughs) send us pictures you did we did a survey on this right or we're going to
0: yeah so we put it we asked some of our newsletter readers at america to send in uh photos of their nativity set and i think and i think we're going to this friday we're going to put it in the facebook group we're going to start a thread so uh get your cameras out Go jump over to the facebook group find the thread there um put a picture of you or your family's nativity scene it's facebook.com slash group slash jesuitical
3: Joining us in studio is Michael O'Loughlin. He is America's national correspondent and the host of the new podcast, Plague Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church. Welcome to Jesuitical, Mike.
0: Hi,
1: Ashley. Hi, Zach. Hi, Mike. It's so good (laughs) to have you
0: here. Gosh, it's so fun to be here. You were on Jesuitical, I think, like episode like three or two or it something. it was early like on Baby yeah. we were not in the studio I know <laughs> no. that. so it's you know back 100 epi- 121 this yep. episode so yeah, congratulations. it's good to have you have you back here and you have a new podcast
1: I have a new podcast uh, and I think a lot of your listeners listen to it yes, on Sunday thank you did. to them
0: yeah so we put it in our podcast feed on Sunday so you probably saw it there and if you haven't listened to it yet um, you pause. should because it's amazing yeah pause <laughs> (laughs) Go listen to that. No, I'm kidding. Um, You will still get a lot out of this interview if you haven't listened to the show yet.
3: Yeah, so one of the reasons you wanted to do this podcast is, like us, you were not alive during the height of the AIDS epidemic. And I'm sure that's the same for a lot of our listeners. So could you just kind of give us some of the basic facts of what was happening at that time?
1: Sure, yeah, no, that's exactly right. So I'm 34. I was born in 1985. The AIDS epidemic is largely seen as happening from like 1981 Through the peak in like 1996, so I was just so you
3: were alive. I was alive, but too young to, yeah.
1: So, and the reason I wanted to uh, do this project was I've been writing a lot lately, the last few years, about the Catholic Church and LGBT issues, and a lot of it's been kind of bad news: Um, teachers getting fired, church musicians getting fired, uh, LGBT Catholics saying they can't find a space in the church for them. And I thought, you know, this can't be the first time this is happening. Like it feels fresh to me because I'm reporting it and like living in 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 the news and as I started to talk to some older LGBT people like in their you know 50s 60s, 70s I realized that they had their own stories that I just wasn't familiar with yet and nowhere else uh, in history has that clash between gay identity and Catholic faith had been more intense, I think, than during the AIDS crisis. So that's what I was really going for, kind of capturing the stories of what life was like back then.
0: Could you just set the scene of the crisis itself, maybe, even, you know, leaving the church out of it for a second? So what what what's happening? Like, what when does AIDS come on the scene? How many people are affected? What's the country's response to it? Sure.
1: So there's um, kind of a detailed history of the medical side of things on how this happens, uh, how this illness comes to be. We start the podcast in the early 1980s. So this is at a time when HIV is... Uh, the virus that causes AIDS. So we know what it is. This is like in the early 1980s. Um, basically what it's, what it's doing is it's a virus that affects people's immune systems. So you can't fight common infections and you can get a common cold or pneumonia and it becomes lethal. Um, it's affecting early on primarily young gay men in their 20s and 30s uh, in coastal cities, New York, San Francisco, LA. Uh, by like 1986, so this is a few years into the crisis, more than 25,000 Americans had died from AIDS. And this is only a few years into it. By the height of the crisis in 1996, 300,000 Americans die from AIDS-related complications, which is just a huge number. Yeah. Uh, for the podcast, we figured it was about the population of Pittsburgh just gone oh my in just a, under a decade. Uh, so there's a lot of fear. Uh, people don't early on don't know how it spread. They don't know um, who's going to catch it next, um, and they just see like entire communities being wiped out. I remember uh, we were interviewing someone, and they said like an entire apartment building in New York was just like wiped out. Like it was Mm -hmm. mostly gay men living there and then eventually there was no one left. And those stories were not uncommon. As I did the interviews, people said they lost entire groups of friends. So it was the fear of uh, not knowing how this was spread and then just the overwhelming grief in dealing with uh, losing
0: friends and And, partners. And this is a group that's, all you know, the LGBT population is already stigmatized at this time, right? Like pretty heavily. And so all of a sudden there's this disease that no one knows how, They contracted and i'm sure it just compounds upon the stigmatization that this group is feeling at the time
1: yeah i mean one one of the the sad things i heard as i did the interviews was gay rights had kind of taken a step forward in the 60s and 70s and they felt like they were kind of making progress and then 1980s come along and this new disease comes on the scene and it just seems to kind of put all the gains uh set them back because people are now afraid and they're not sure uh how they can interact with like wider society now because they're kind of this stigmatized uh group that feels like lepers almost so it was almost like this tragic sort of we've made progress and now we're kind of retreating back into the closets we're afraid
3: yeah so now that we have the groundwork for the crisis it- itself what was the church's role in all of this
1: It's a it's a good question. I guess
3: you have an entire podcast series to answer that question. So (laughs)
1: no, it's a great question, and because there is, it's it's not like clear right away. Like, why would the Catholic Church be involved with HIV and AIDS care? And one of the the one of the answers that we explore in the second episode is part of it's just location. So a big epicenter of the crisis is in New York, which at the time there's still a hugely powerful uh, and robust Catholic healthcare system and a huge gay population. And we really explored the angle of how do Catholic hospitals serve a gay community when there's so much friction between the two groups? And it was not an easy process. Um, What I found compelling was there was a group of Catholic sisters in New York who was running St. Vincent's Hospital, which becomes sort of the main AIDS care centers in the city. And there was some tension early on. But rather than retreat or become defensive, the sisters said, how can we do better? Like, what's going on? Like, why is there this fear from the gay community toward our staff? And it set off a years-long process of kind of changing to make sure that people felt comfortable. So it's it's just individual Catholics were motivated by a desire to serve those in need. And at the time, it was uh, gay men who were sick who needed help. So a lot of people stepped up.
0: In in episode one, you say it's it was often framed, or it is often framed, as uh, gays versus the Catholic Church, right? Yep. It, but you say that's not quite right. I guess why? Why? Why would people think that?
1: Yeah, so I, I think a lot of people, if they think about this time in history at all, and if they think about the church during this time, it is groups like ACT UP, which was sort of a radical, in-your-face protest group.
3: These are people who would go to mass and you know shout or stomp the Eucharist on the ground.
1: Yeah, that that did happen. Though
3: um, so maybe that was an outlier. <laughs> that seems to be of sort protest. of like
1: um, one of the bigger actions that they had. Um, this was Stop the Church. It happened in 1989, where uh, hundreds of people sort of stormed St. Patrick's Cathedral and protested during mass. Uh, one of the protesters crumpled up uh, the Eucharist and threw it on the ground. And it that is exactly why people think it's like gays versus the church, because there was this sort of uh, media focus on these really extreme events. But as I started to interview people, I realized that it's not that simple because there are a lot of people who had a foot in both worlds, right? So, like, there are gay men who are also Catholic at this time trying to figure out, do I have a home in either community? And then when the AIDS crisis hits, they're the ones who step up and try to um, serve other people who need help. So that's what we're trying to do is complicate it a little bit to think Yes, there was a lot of tension between these two groups, but when you kind of move away from the spotlight, you see that individual stories become actually much more interesting.
0: Maybe someone who's in both the spotlight and has sort of a complicated individual story is uh, Cardinal John O'Connor, who's the Archbishop of New York at the time. Could you maybe tell his story a little bit?
1: So Cardinal O'Connor is appointed Archbishop of New York by Pope John Paul II. He quickly rises to become one of the most powerful archbishops in the country. Uh, He's a close advisor to the Pope. And just by being Archbishop of New York at the time means he has a powerful uh, kind of bully pulpit. And he kind of becomes the focus of different protest groups because he does control a big healthcare network and the church's prohibition on condoms was enforced at these hospitals and clinics. And groups like ACT UP were not happy about that because they saw condoms as a way to slow the spread of HIV. Uh, But O'Connor then also uses his political clout at the time to sort of fight Gay rights bills in city council. Um, he's appointed to Ronald Reagan's AIDS commission. So he's someone who has a lot of political influence. And that seems to be why different groups were targeting him. Mm-hmm. Where his story becomes a little complicated is he, at the same time that he's kind of the target of these protests, he's directing a lot of Catholic money into Catholic health care, which were some of the first places where people with AIDS could receive help. And he also is known to be visiting people with AIDS in these hospitals. Um, He says in a clip that we have uh, that he visited more than a thousand people with AIDS. I was
0: just moved by that. Yeah.
1: So that's that's the side of the Cardinal that maybe isn't as well known. Um, But critics point out, like, look, yes, that's good that he visited us, but he also was fighting things that maybe would have prevented us from getting sick. Mm -hmm. So there are these... um, these narratives about Cardinal O'Connor that are still kind of clashing even three decades later.
3: Yeah. And in episode one, you, um, you're talking to, uh, David Pace. Pace? Yep. Um, and you talked, you mentioned earlier before that, you know, these people often spanned both worlds. They were gay and Catholic and, and his story is really about that.
1: What I love about David's story is it shows that this can be a struggle that lasts a lifetime. Uh, he's someone who was very involved in the Catholic church as a young man at the height of the AIDS crisis, he steps away because he's kind of burnt out, and he kind of becomes not Catholic for a while. And then he considers— His
0: parish group is sort of—he had uh, was pushed out, right? So he, yeah, uh- So
1: David was part of a group called Dignity, which was for gay Catholics, and it was kind of an official Catholic ministry for a while. In, in the early 1980s, in the mid-1980s, Dignity is kicked out of Catholic parishes. Um, but I
3: think it's also significant, right, that the first meeting of gay men about the AIDS epidemic in New York happened in a Catholic church, which he, he started, right?
1: Yeah. So uh, he volunteers with a group called Gay Men's Health Crisis, and they need space to meet and they don't have anywhere. So he goes to his parish and they say, sure, use our church. So, so he's got like feet planted
0: in both worlds. Very but much Eventually so. pushed, sort of, he feels pushed out by the church.
1: He feels pushed out. He leaves for a while. He considers coming back um, through a Protestant denomination, back to religion. He decides that's not right for him. Now, today, he's very involved in his parish in New York. And what I liked about his story was he kind of, he stepped back when he needed to, and then he got more involved when he felt like he was ready to. And he says, like, you just have to kind of claim your space and say that I'm going to be part of this church and accept it's not going to be perfect and there's going to be challenges. But I think that probably resonates with a lot of people today.
0: How does it resonate with your own experience in the church?
1: Mm. At the end of interviews, I asked people um, for younger gay Catholics who weren't alive during this time, like, what's your advice about like remaining part of this institution when you don't always feel welcome? And the advice I got from people like David, uh, from other people we interviewed for other episodes was you can't wait for someone to sort of approve of the decisions you've made in your life. You have to choose to be part of the institution or not. And once you choose to be part of it, just accept that this is where you are and that you have a right to be there. So it was kind of Being an adult about all this, um, kind of taking, you know, your baptismal rights seriously and just planting yourself in the institution, um, that's been a kind of powerful lesson of people who are a few decades older than me who have done this and they've settled where they've settled and they feel good about it. It's a good reminder that sometimes you just have to do, just do it.
3: (laughs) And I mean, where does you wanting to tell this story and make sure this history was not forgotten fit into that, does it?
1: it does yeah um i've been thinking a lot as i learn these stories that there's this whole history that we don't know much about part of that's on me like i should have searched this out probably but there's also because this is a fairly controversial topic lgbt history in the catholic church it's not being passed on to us it's not like we have like ccd lessons about it as kids (laughs) or like uh priests are preaching about it very often so it's almost like we're losing this really vital part of our church history And I'm trying to capture as much as I can uh, before too many decades pass and it's no longer possible.
0: How have things changed uh, for LGBT Catholics between now and then? That's another good question.
1: I asked that to a lot of people I interviewed. Especially I said, you know, society has advanced a lot in terms of LGBT rights or just general acceptance even um, over the past decade, decade and a half. At the same time, it seems like I'm still writing stories about uh lgbt catholics who don't feel like the church has advanced as much or as quickly and so i asked you know was it easier is it easier today or was it easier back then and a lot of people who even had very difficult experiences in the 80s and 90s with the church said it was easier back then because it was almost like the church operated with a don't ask don't tell policy whereas today because um gay and lesbian people are much more visible and prominent in the church so right. it's almost like there's an incentive sometimes for some church leaders to uh, respond to that negatively. In, in previous decades, maybe that wasn't the case. So I, I find that interesting that it's actually, some people think it's getting harder than it has been. That was surprising.
0: In a lot of ways, this is a sort of universal story about the way the church exists and is viewed, right? Because you, I mean, as you mentioned, there are these like big flashpoints and stories that people follow, but then, and you know, lots of focus on bishops and their responses. But then there are also just these like very quiet, like uh stories of people serving and being hurt and being healed um that are and that's also the church right and i feel like that was a big takeaway that i got from the
3: podcast
1: yeah uh, one of the things that really uh stuck out to me as we were reporting the saint vincent's episode was we and That's ran- the,
3: uh, the hospital in new york city St. Yep. uh the hospital
1: in new york that becomes kind of the haven for gay men um and Uh, Eloise and I, we went down to the old campus. It's condos today. The hospital's no longer there. But we ran into someone who is kind of a local historian tour guide. Uh, He's in the episode. And he's very blunt. He's very honest. He has issues with the Catholic Church. Uh, And he kind of listed them about money, sexuality. And he was very honest that he didn't agree with everything. But then when he turned to the Catholic sisters who ran St. Vincent's, he was just, uh, you know, he was glowing about them. He was really impressed with them. He thought they were wonderful. So it was interesting to see someone sort of make the differentiation between the church, which I think he meant the archdiocese and the bishop, and then the sisters who, to him, was something different. And that was a lot of things we encountered where people have this idea of the institution as one thing, but then individuals as something else. But really, it's all the same. It's all the church.
0: Did you have any doubts or worries Working on this or telling these stories?
1: I had a couple. Um, one was I wanted to do justice to the stories I was hearing. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it's a heavy topic, right? I mean, we, we show some moments of levity in the podcast, um, people just feeling like they were able to be human, but it, it's tough. It's a tough topic. And, you know, I was in San Francisco and when I was reporting the episode out there, Most of the people I interviewed had to take a break because they were very emotional and they were crying during the interview and they said they hadn't relived these stories in decades. Uh, So it was an honor to be with them and hear their story. So I wanted to make sure I did justice to that. Uh, The second one was I wasn't sure how it would be received. Uh, There's a little bit of, I think in some segments of the church, a desire to be proud of the good things that Catholics did at this time, but a discomfort with homosexuality. And it's not really easy to talk about one without the other when it comes to this time. And I'm curious how people will receive this. So far, it's been really positive. Um, People want to talk about this stuff and they're open to it. But I think there is still some discomfort about acknowledging some of the more negative aspects of what some Catholics did at the time.
3: It seems like a lot of the things that the church doesn't necessarily, and it's probably not going to, going to change its doctrine and the catechism. But even within that, there was a lot of room for the church to be compassionate or and more compassionate than it was sometimes. And I feel like that's probably still true today.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think we were setting out to influence church teaching in one way or another. We were just collecting stories, right? Uh, but you're exactly right that there were these moments when there were individual Catholics whose had a desire to help and maybe weren't sure how to do that right away and made some mistakes. Uh but were willing to learn and kind of change how they approach the topic. And those are the stories that I find the most interesting when someone can acknowledge they had shortcomings, but then overcome them and end up on the right side of things.
0: It is a beautiful podcast. You should be proud of it. Um we're proud of you. I am I'll sp- I won't speak fresh. Yes. Fashion, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so-
3: we're proud of our producer Eloise who produces both Jesuitical and plague.
0: Yes, this would not
1: ever have come close to happening without Eloise.
0: Um so everyone needs to go listen to episode one is out. Episode two will be out this Sunday. Um, and it's released. It's a five episode series. Yes. Six um, episodes. Six episode series coming out every Sunday um, until it's out. Um, so it's on the American media podcast network. So just jump over there. I like it's the sound of that. I know it sounds nice, right? <laughs> I made that up. Um, so go. So everybody go listen and subscribe there. Um, we have one final question for you. Uh, we ask all our guests. You this. know, it's
3: coming.
1: Oh, no, I forgot about this.
0: <laughs> if you canonize anyone. Living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or non-fictional, who would it be and why?
1: Should it be podcast related?
3: It doesn't need to be, but it can be. I
1: think it might be. And you know what? I'm going to pick someone who I never met because I think when you meet someone, it's hard to think of them as a saint, right? <laughs> um, so there's this sister, Patrice Murphy, who ran the hospice program at St. Vincent's. That's the hospital um, where a lot, of, a lot of gay men spent their final days. And she kind of set up this sort of revolutionary hospice program there. And the reason why I think she should be the answer to this question, her name was voiced by everyone on all different sides of this topic. So you had, you know, you had Catholic sisters who remembered her fondly as a, you know, as a Catholic sister like they were. But you also had gay men whose partners died, who they remembered her kind of providing solace at the end of their lives. You have activist groups Uh, members of activist groups who also thought that she was doing the right thing and then you had like the medical team saying yeah we like gave out condoms and she knew what was going on but like we were able to come to an understanding about what, what our roles were so she seemed to like break all these different barriers that were separating these different groups and that seems like something a saint should do
3: all right all right saint murphy
0: saint murphy saint murphy Again, the podcast is Plague. Everyone should go listen to it. Mike, thanks so much for all your work for the church and for uh, America Magazine. Um, we're we're so honored that you came on our podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, and thanks to all your listeners for listening. Thanks,
3: Mike. It's time for some housekeeping first a huge thank you to bridget francis riley and gabriel b who are new patreon supporters yes
0: thank you so much can't do the show without support from listeners so if you're interested in joining uh bridget and gabriel you can head over to patreon.com america media
3: right and this advent if you're looking for a new spiritual practice check out the word a podcast of scripture-based reflections from america
0: Yeah, and we're doing it every day this Advent. So they're really short, they're really nice uh, reflections. So it'll have the day's gospel... And then it will have a quick reflection on and, that.
3: And even better than that, you get to hear Zach's voice in your head every day for a week.
0: Yes, but if you're thinking, so I am, so <laughs> Ashley and I are both participating in uh, reading some of these uh, reflections. I know what you're thinking. My uh, Jesuitical podcast voice is not very soothing, but I want you to know I practice my best Krista Tippett uh, reflective <laughs> voice for the word. And so I hope it will not be that distracting.
3: And I try not to giggle when I'm doing it. <laughs>
0: Yes. So that's uh, The Word, and you can find it on America Media's podcast network. Um, So subscribe and listen over there. It's The Word wherever you get your podcasts.
3: All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach?
0: I have a consolation this week. My dad turned 50 over this past weekend. And to celebrate, we spent it on the bourbon trail. So nice. that is not the consolation in and of itself, <laughs> but uh, worthy candidate. Um, the consolation's in more that, like, as my dad's gotten older and as I've gotten older, I've noticed he's gotten a lot more tender, is the word I would use, or more, like, in mm-hmm. touch with his emotions. Um, this is about a month and a half ago, um, right before my wedding. We kind of had a day together where he sort of was really open um, about his own life experiences and emotions in a way that... Um, Maybe he hadn't been in the past or I wasn't able to see or notice growing up. And that just sort of rolled into this weekend. You know, our relationship is changing as, you know, he's getting older and I'm getting older. And the consolation is that I'm filled with like a lot of gratitude for uh, his openness to God's work in his life and being willing to like share that with us. It's just fills me with a lot of gratitude and consolation and being able to receive that from him and sort of evolve and change with him.
3: That's really wonderful. Yeah, it
0: was good. Happy birthday, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, what do you got?
3: Uh, I also have a consolation, uh, which will sound jarring when I say the next part. Um, but so this week marks two years since my uh, uncle was killed. Uh, and we were down in South Carolina for Thanksgiving, where that side of the family, most of them live. Um, so on Friday, we had a internment ceremony for his ashes. Um, and I went into it feeling kind of uneasy. Like, I... I I don't know. But the one thing I love about the Catholic church is like I know what the rituals are and I find comfort in them and like this wasn't going to be that. Like um his former wife was going to like play a song and we were going to be there together and I just like I like structure. Um, so I didn't really know what to expect. Um but then, you know, sh- she played the song. Uh his daughters were there, my aunts and uncles and cousins, we were all there and I was just so moved. It was, you know, it was exactly what he would have wanted. Uh we were we were crying, but we were also making jokes and laughing. Um and I could just like really feel his presence there and like yeah, another part of it was just like this feel this fear that, you know, he was gonna be forgotten, that I was gonna forget him, I wasn't gonna like feel sad anymore. Um, and that certainly wasn't the case. Um so it was just, just like a really moving time to be with my family and to feel his presence there. So yeah, that's, it was really nice. Yeah.
0: His name is Tony. Yeah, yeah Uncle Tony.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: What do you got, Olga? So I've also got a consolation this week. Um, Last week, Enoch and I had to do our usual divide holiday time between my family and his. And we ended up at his parents. I got to meet a lot of his family that I had never met before. And I started off the day being very overwhelmed and being like, I don't want to see anyone. Uh, But as we were driving home that night, I turned to Enoch and I'm just like, I genuinely love your parents and I love your sister. And the consolation in that for me was you guys know more than anyone and our listeners clearly know as well. It has not been an easy road for me to get to this moment with his family and just being in that space where I got to pray with them because they're a very spiritual family. So there's a lot of prayer on every holiday. Um, But just listening to like his dad talk about what it was like to grow up in Ghana and making fun of like his kids and cousins and just being in that space and knowing that I've gotten to a point where I love them and I can feel them loving me back. It's just such a powerful point for me to be in my relationship with them and i just i'm so grateful that god has taken me to that point because even a year ago i never thought that i would have been in this place and it's just so rewarding to have these feelings for them
0: to get that in the stress yeah. of the holidays yeah
2: i know because yeah. i remember the past
3: the holidays were like a really hard time and so to like go into it with started off with a, such a great moment mm-hmm. that's great yeah
2: so shout out to the johnsons Aww. yeah All right. Get us
0: out of here, Ashley. I will
3: do. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrum. Production help from Tucker Redding. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.